Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Once you open a drawer, you invariably, behind that drawer, find hidden drawers. And that was not something that we were aware of at the time that we bought the cabinet. In this episode, I speak with the Gettys Annalise Desmarres and Arlen Higginbotham about two works in the collection of the Getty Museum, the Borghese Windsor Cabinet and a marble bust to Pope Paul V. A little over a year ago, in September 2016, the Getty Museum announced the acquisition of a remarkable work, a cabinet standing almost six feet tall, decorated with exquisite stones and bright ornamental gilding. The cabinet was commissioned for the Borghese Pope, Paul V, in about 1620, and was later owned by the 19th-century British monarch, King George IV. Prior to going on display in the Getty Museum, the cabinet underwent a period of study and analysis by the museum's curatorial and conservation teams, led by Annalise Desmarres, head of sculpture and decorative arts, and Arlen Higginbotham, decorative arts conservator. The Borghese Windsor Cabinet, as it is referred to now, is currently on view in our galleries, not far from a marble bust of its original owner, Pope Paul V, by the master sculptor, John Lorenzo Bernini. I met Annalise in Arlen in the galleries where the cabinet and bust are on display to learn about their research and discoveries, and their findings were astonishing. We're standing before an extraordinarily sumptuous cabinet, the top part of which was likely made in Rome around 1620 for Pope Paul V, and the bottom half 200 years later for King George IV of England. Annalise, we'll get to its ownership history in a minute, but let's first describe the cabinet for our listeners. Tell us about its size and its extraordinary array of materials and its appearance. Sure, Jim. So, as you said, it's uh, you know composed of two parts: a bottom part from the 19th century and an upper part from the early 17th uh, century. The upper part looks like the facade of a building, and it has actually uh, three levels. The first level is composed of, if you will, seven bays. Um, seven bays. Yeah, seven bays separated by a total of uh, 14 columns. And it's marked in the middle uh, with a very deep niche. Uh, this niche is surmounted by a semicircular uh, pediment, which is ornated uh, with the cotiforms of the Pope that you can uh, recognize quite easily because it has a winged dragon and an eagle. And on top of that, of the escutcheon, you can see the pontifical tiara and the keys of St. Peter. The second level is a little bit uh, smaller, in uh, width and height. It also has uh, seven uh, bays <laughs> with uh, columns, uh, and it is flanked by two little uh, statuettes, and its pediment is uh, triangular. And then at the very top, you have uh, a narrower uh, third uh, level, uh, which is decorated by carotids, and on top of it, you have this sumptuous uh, statuette of a Roman uh, emperor. The total height of this upper part of a cabinet is around uh, 70 inches and its depth is around uh, 50 inches. The bottom part is more sober, although it's quite intriguing thanks to his uh, mirrored backboard that reflects uh, a total of 24 fluted unique columns. Uh, they are decorated with uh, gilded uh, elements. Now, you said it was 70 inches high or so. When I'm standing next to it, it's one and a half times my height, it seems, in appearance. The top part, the part that was made for Pope Paul V, 
is different in style than the lower part, which was made for the Windsor king. Um, what would the top part have originally been put upon? Would it have been on a simpler base at the bottom? Because I assume that it was not just standing on its own on the floor, but rather it was about this height on something else. Indeed, you're right. It may have been put on top of a table with a marble top and with a base uh, decorated in gilded wood, I assume. And this kind of table zoo, they found them uh, very commonly in the interiors of Roman palaces. Arlen, if you could tell us something about the sumptuous materials and then something about the trade that might have been involved in getting those materials from wherever they were found originally to Rome for the manufacture of this cabinet. Yeah, this cabinet is really a feast of sumptuous materials. And it ranges from, um, of course, exotic stones to exotic woods to ivory and to precious metals. The stones, which are really the highlight of the cabinet, uh, come from different locations all around the world. The lapis lazuli, which is a dominant stone in the cabinet, probably traveled the furthest, coming from Afghanistan. And that's the dark blue that we see almost everywhere. That's right, mottled, mottled blue. The uh, agates are also feature very prominently. There are these um, banded and striped stones. Those probably came from Germany and were prepared as flattened and polished sections in Germany and then shipped to Rome where they were cut and assembled. Some of the um, alabasters probably came from Egypt. We think that um, some of the uh, green bloodstone came from India. So really, these things were traveling from all over the world, being brought together to have their presence here in this cabinet. And then they're cut very thinly to be applied on the surface of the cabinet itself. And the cabinet, I don't want to give our listeners the impression the cabinet is made of stones. This is actually applied to the surface, is that right? That's right. And they're all flat and polished and level on the surface and assembled into uh, rich geometric patterns. One of the things that's very interesting about the stones is that some of them are opaque, but some of them are quite transparent. And the, the fabricators of the cabinet, the cabinet makers and stoneworkers, use that to advantage. And behind the transparent stones, they used a whole variety of different colored transparent resins and metal foils, silver, brass, gold foils behind the, the stones that you can see reflect light back through the stone and add color to them. Now, this cabinet was made in around 1620. Annalise, can you tell us something about the history of such cabinets uh, and the, the fascination with the sumptuous materials of what we call pietra dura, the hard stones? Is this something that one would have found in the 16th century, or is this more Baroque taste of the 17th century? Well, I think it comes from a long tradition. You know, also uh, during the Roman period, you would have had uh, fantastic decorations in... Uh, Classical Rome? Yes, in classical Rome. And then also uh, during the medieval times, you had fantastic uh, floors in the basilicas using very colorful stones. So it comes from a very long uh, tradition. And in uh, Rome, we have also the example of another major cabinet made for another pope, Sixtus V, which dates from 30 years earlier than uh, this one. So yes, already in the 16th century, you would have found this kind of uh, objects. And let's not forget also a very important table, the Farnese table, which is now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So this uh, use of art stones was not only for cabinets, but also for uh, fantastic tabletops. Then how common were these things? I mean, I call it a cabinet. It might give our listeners the impression that it is something into which one puts 
things, like a, a dresser drawer might be a cabinet. Did every aristocrat in the 17th century have such a cabinet like this, or would it only be the Pope and the princes and the royals? So let's say that no, it wasn't common for a piece of this size. We have only very few that uh, were documented and are actually uh, preserved. So this is really exceptional for its size and for the richness of all these uh, stones. But you would have found quite commonly in Rome and also in Florence, because Florence had actually a manufacturer with uh, artists specialized in these kind of uh, objects, you know, the uh, Uffizio delle Petedure that was created by uh, the Medici uh, family. But in Rome, you would have found quite commonly in uh, the interior of palaces such cabinets but smaller in size. So let's say of the size of a jewel box, if you want. And you would have found also similar objects for little uh, altars that would have been used in a private manner by uh, very important families for their private chapels. So let's say that it's common to have uh, Pietre Dure ornaments on smaller objects, but with the size and with uh, the multitude of all these stones for this cabinet, it's really uh, exceptional. So what was its purpose? I mean, was its purpose to actually hold things like we would have in a cabinet today, or was it uh, to show off the style and taste of the owner? Was it to show off the richness of the owner, the owner who could afford to commission such an object like this? I think its purpose was more to show off the richness of who was the, um, the owner of such uh, objects, also to show off the extremely well-mastered skills of uh, important craftsmen. And possibly it could have been used to hold um, documents, to hold medals. But we should ask uh, this question to Arlen, actually, since he's, he's been looking very uh, accurately at all the drawers. Do we see signs of usage of this cabinet? The cabinet was very surprising to us. First of all, if you look at the cabinet, there are no drawer handles anywhere. So in a sense, all of the drawers are hidden. Some of them, um, when we opened them, appeared to not have been opened for many hundreds of years. The dust in them is very thick, and I think they had been essentially forgotten. The, the major... Can I, can I ask how you found the drawers, since it is impossible to see them as drawers? Did you push and pull on every bit of the surface of the cabinet to make certain that you discovered every drawer there's possibly there? Yes, that's right. That's exactly what we did. And interestingly, I think we found that a lot of the damage to the cabinet, that very small damages and loose moldings and things that we discovered, are associated with people trying to get into it with no handles, pushing and pulling on the moldings and breaking them loose. Um, but once you open a drawer, you invariably, behind that drawer, find hidden drawers. And that was not something that we were aware of at the time that we bought the cabinet. There are about 25 drawers that are visible, and behind them, another 50 hidden drawers. And the drawers on the interior, some of them are decorated and ornamented. Some of them are very plain and, and simple poplar drawers. And there's very, very little evidence of them ever having been used. All right. So is it part of the um, aesthetics of an object like this, the ingenuity of making such drawers, drawers within drawers? I think that's it. I think it's the surprise and the delight that uh, a viewer would get from having someone open the drawers for you and show you the hidden compartments and things. I think that must have been a big element of the purpose of the cabinet. Now, Annalise, I noticed that the decorative materials, the fine materials, are limited mainly, possibly only, to the facade of the cabinet and that the sides are just much simpler. 
Why are the sides simpler? Does that give us any indication of how this was meant to be seen in a room in a particular set of circumstances? Or is it just to show off the facade of the cabinet? I think it's to show off the facade. Do not forget that anyway, all these materials were quite expensive. So, you know, you tend to put them on the part of the cabinet that you see most. Most likely this piece of furniture, which is quite big, would have been shown in one of the major rooms of a palace in Rome. So possibly the biggest uh, Sala, Sala Grande, or the gallery, in which you would have seen it from the front, I would say. But I would also insist that the sides of the cabinet are very interesting and they create a kind of contrast between the very colorful facade and another kind of colorful sides. And it's thanks to the uh, work of uh, Arlen in terms of cleaning and restoring the piece that we got back all these kind of uh, very subtle colors of the wood on the sides. Perhaps, Arlen, you can tell us more. Yeah, the sides are um, not about stone, obviously, but they are about wood. And there are five different woods, including ebony, rosewood, uh, probably purple heart, and a couple of woods that we haven't identified yet. So this wood that features in the center of the side cabinet with its wild and uh, exaggerated grain and knots and rich color is uh, one that we still haven't identified. And in fact, right now, a whole team of uh, wood anatomists from all over the world are working with photographs that we took here under the microscope to help us try and identify this wood. To identify it, do they just look for likenesses between one known piece of wood and this piece of wood, or do they actually take a sample from the wood? We took a sample, a very small sample, and made microscopically thin slices of it and look at the cell structure of the wood and identify it uh, based on that. This one does not match any of the about 10,000 varieties of woods that are in the, some of the standard databases, which is all to say it's a very interesting wood. It's a very unusual wood. It's something that I think uh, would have been uh, highly prized. This kind of fiery um, pattern of the wood grain Yeah, it looks like uh, as if it might be a flame or yeah, something. Exactly. It's really something special. And you can see little traces of white wood or the sap wood, which is the exterior part of the tree which tells us that this tree was really a very small tree. It wasn't a a huge tropical uh, timber, but it was something that was selected very carefully from small, very old trees for its Is there any evidence that the wood has come from as far away as stone? I mean, in other words, is that... It certainly has come from far away. Our guess right now is that it's probably from Central America or the Caribbean. No kidding. Well, Annalise, tell us about the iconography of the cabinet. We've described it so far, both its fine materials, uh, wood and metals and stone. Um, But as you said earlier, there are sculptures on the facade, and it's capped to the very top by what appears to be a generic Roman emperor. Uh, Is there something meaningful about the iconography, and could you describe in more detail some of the figures that we see on the surface? Sure. Well, it's a little bit difficult to interpret the uh, overall uh, program uh, of the decoration because of some missing elements. Most of the attributes that for sure the little uh, statuettes uh, would have had in their hands are missing. So it's a little bit difficult to understand which virtues, for instance, they would have uh, represented. They are uh, nearly all female virtues, actually, for the statuettes, except for the caryatids on the uh, third level that are half male and half uh, female. For the upper statuette of uh, Roman emperor, well, we could say that in a way, 
he represents uh, the power on Earth, uh, while, of course, um, the power of the Pope would have been more of a spiritual order. So there is a kind of link, of course, that Popes always wanted to make also with classical antiquity. Classical antiquity was, um, even for Popes, a model to follow. Yeah. Do we know where this cabinet was in Pope Paul V's quarters? Was it in the Borghese Villa? Was it Palazzo Borghese? Was it in the Vatican? Do we have any idea where it was? So to answer this question, we face exactly the same problem as who worked on this piece of furniture. Paintings or statues would have been very precisely described in inventories, usually, while pieces of furniture, less. So you would find only the uh, information of a Pietre Dure cabinet, but it doesn't tell you if it's this one or another one. So I've looked, of course, into uh, inventories of the Borghese Palace and of the Borghese Villa, and I wasn't able to say for sure this cabinet mentioned in the archive is the one we have, but I, I will keep looking for it. Yeah. So it's placed in the galleries just opposite the door from which one enters the gallery, so one is drawn to it because of its great sumptuous beauty. But it's also with the gilded silver sculptures on it. It picks up a lot of the gold that bounces around off different objects in the room. Would it have been seen uh, in either the villa or the palazzo in daylight? Would it have been candlelight? Because if it had candles in front of it, the sumptuous stone would have just flickered and come alive, almost like ablaze with flames. Do you have any idea how it was seen and lit? During the day, I think it would have been seen in daylight, you know, in a very important uh, galleria or a very uh, big, uh, large room. And for sure, during the night, at the occasion of important dinners, of course, this would have been the occasion to light the, the cabinet with uh, candles and to highlight some of the details of the stones and to uh, even show more the uh, translucid aspect of some of the stones, as Arlen has said um, before. And then it would have been surrounded by many, I would assume, antique sculptures, uh, classical busts on top of pedestals, but also tapestries on the wall, very important uh, marble tabletop pieces of furniture. So a lot of uh, artworks, of course, including also paintings, I would say. Do we have any idea uh, who might have made the cabinet? Were there famous cabinet makers at the time? Would they have left their mark somewhere on the cabinet? So unfortunately, no, we don't have any kind of uh, signature or marks for this uh, cabinet. We know about artists and craftsmen working for these kind of objects in the 17th century Italy, but unfortunately it's always very difficult to connect the names that we can see, for instance, in the contability of very important aristocratic families. So to connect these names with the actual objects are always uh, really a challenge. And you need to also take into consideration that such a piece wouldn't have been made by a single artist. It was really a team of very different specialists. So perhaps an architect would have been responsible for the design of the facade. A joiner would have made the casework. A cabinet maker would have worked on the veneer and the moldings. While, of course, you would have needed stone cutters for all the uh, little elements in uh, hard stones. You would also need a metal worker for all the gilded ornaments of the columns, while most likely you would have also uh, required a sculptor uh, for the realization of the statuettes and with the help of a silversmith. Well, tell us about Pope Paul V and the man for whom the cabinet was made. I know that he was born into a noble family in 1550 and that his family was at its height during his reign as Pope and that his portrait was painted by Caravaggio and that his nephew, the great cardinal Scipione Borghese, was an extraordinary collector that he commissioned sculptures by Bernini, for example. We'll see one soon. And he acquired a number of paintings by Raphael, Caravaggio, so many others. 
Was Pope Paul V a collector like his nephew, the cardinal? Did he care about the cabinet as a collector might care about it, or was it just a sign of his wealth and power? So Paul V was not a collector like his uh, cardinal, but he was a very important patron of the arts. He's the Pope responsible for the completion of the facade of the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome by the architect uh, Carlo Maderno. He did also a lot in bringing water to the city in uh, restoring many uh, Roman architects. And he is also responsible for the building of an important chapel in the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore for him and for his predecessor. But he cared a lot about art, and uh, you can see that very easily in the archives. At the moment in which he's elected Pope, he officially gives many important artworks to his uh, nephew, Cardinal Scipione Borghese. And if he doesn't collect himself, he encourages his uh, nephew to uh, collect. He supports fully the building of the Palazzo Borghese and also the construction of the Villa Borghese and he helps his nephew to acquire major antiquity collections from different families. Is there the possibility that it was his nephew who commissioned this for the Pope, his uncle? This is possible. We are still investigating about this. I've been uh, researching into the uh, Borghese archive, which is kept in the Vatican archive, and you have the evidence of many smaller cabinets given um, by the Pope to the Cardinal nephew, and also the gift of a very big cabinet, which is not described, so I can't tell you this is the one, um, but very important. I am able to say that thanks to the uh, amount of money that is mentioned in that uh, document. So I would not imagine uh, the Cardinal Scipione Borghese having a piece of furniture made for his uh, ankle. Uh, he will instead have a marble bust <laughs> done uh, and featuring his uh, ankle. So it's most likely either a commission from the Pope or a very important cabinet that perhaps the Pope bought from another uh, aristocrat family. So we have a good sense of the appearance of the cabinet, a good sense of its materials and from where they've come. We have a sense of the owner of the cabinet, Pope Paul V, and of his extraordinary collector nephew, Cardinal Scipione Borghese. We have a sense, too, of the ownership history of the cabinet, that it was in the Borghese family for some 215 years, when it was sold to an English art dealer, who then sold it on to the English King George IV in 1827. Do we have any sense of why the Borghese sold it and why George IV might have bought it? And did he buy it for Windsor Castle? We don't know precisely when the Borghese family sold it. Perhaps this happened at the moment of the French Revolution. This is possible. Thanks to a very accurate description of the 1821 uh, auction catalogue, we know that already in 1821, the piece was in London and already on top of this base. On top of the base? Yeah, so this is a new piece of uh, information because actually we always thought that the base uh, had been made for George IV, King of England, after he acquired the piece. But the base is actually already described in 1821 when this piece of furniture was put at auction as belonging to a very important collection, unfortunately still anonymous, so I'll try to do some research into the archives of Christie's because they have these So, uh, so there files. may have been an owner between Borghese and the Windsor King. Exactly. So we can imagine now that there may have been indeed a very important collector who may have bought the piece just after the French Revolution, owned it, and then in 1821 his collection is put at auction, but unfortunately anonymously. 
And then the piece was uh, most likely bought by Baldock, who was a very important dealer in London, who sold many uh, pieces to the king, and then acquired by George IV. I can't tell you precisely for which purpose George IV was an incredible collector. He bought many, many, many things, and I'm not sure he had in his mind a precise uh, location for the things he would buy. So the piece, uh, as I recall, was first shown in uh, Windsor, and already one year after its acquisition, it was sent from uh, Windsor to London to a storeroom where it may have been uh, restored. And we know that um, in the following years, it was displayed in the green drawing room in Buckingham Palace because we have actually the cabinet being represented in a watercolor by the artist Douglas Morrison, which is dated in 1843. And most likely the cabinet stayed in that uh, green drawing room for quite a while and we still see it in photographs uh, in a book published in 1931. And then it was moved to Marlborough House, uh, which is a residence that used uh, Queen Mary. And strangely enough, when the Queen died and they decided to sell uh, the belongings that were uh, her property, the Queen actually also decided to sell this uh, cabinet, which was not the property of Queen Mary, but uh, the property of the British Crown. Well, Arlen, why don't you describe for us the George IV part of the cabinet, or the base that the cabinet now sits on, which was a base dating from that early part of the 19th century, and describe what you found in the analysis of it. The base is also made with some very fabulous materials, uh, particularly ebony. Um, Certainly the veneers on the top are ebony. and Most importantly, the columns are all ebony, and they are not ebony veneered onto a core of a less expensive wood as would be normal practice. These are all 24 solid ebony columns, which is a very conspicuous use of expensive and extravagant materials. Interestingly, then, the the gilded bronzes appear to be gilded bronzes, and they go well visually with the gilded uh, bronze of the cabinet, but they are brasses that have been lacquered to look like gold. When it went into the royal collection, it was sent in for restoration, and we have pretty good records of that and what they did. And one of the things that they did was that they relacquered all of the brasses on the base, which tells us that by that point, there was already some wear and deterioration of the bronzes on the base. The mirrors are um, the original mirrors. They've never been replaced. They uh, have a slightly greenish tone and ha- show some evidence of And, and we should age. describe the, the effect of the mirror, what it does for the cabinet itself. It's at floor level, so it's not something that you would look and see yourself in, except perhaps the tips of your toes. But it has an effect of increasing the depth of the base by 100%, that is, it doubles the depth of the base. Right, so instead of the 24 columns that you see in front of the wall, you get the effect of 48 columns disappearing back in behind the cabinet. It's quite dramatic. So the cabinet is sold by the Borghese family. There's an intermediary collector, perhaps, and a dealer that enters into the royal family in England. Then the royal family sells it to a French collector, Robert de Balcani, Tell us, this is in 1959, so about 130 years after the royal family acquired it from the papal family. Tell us about Robert de Balcani and what kind of collector he was. So Robert de Balcani is a quite interesting uh, figure. He's very often surnamed as the king of shopping malls (laughs) because uh, he quite early on decided to study architecture, and he studied architecture in the United States at the Yale University. 
and um, really uh, early on uh, followed the career that his father had as a real estate developer. But it was in a way inspired by all the shopping malls he would see in the United States and he would import that in Europe and precisely in France and also a little bit in uh, Italy in the late uh, 60s. But besides that, he was uh, a very important collector, uh, very much interested in two clocks, into silver, into artworks with very precious materials. And so he had, uh, you know, a couple of uh, actually Pietre Dure cabinets, this one, uh, the Baroque one, but he had also 19th century Pietre Dure uh, cabinet. And he had this fantastic residence in the heart of Paris, Rue de Varennes, not far away from the Rodin Museum, a fantastic hotel particulier called Hotel de Fouquier, truly filled with artworks. I had the uh, privilege to see actually the collection when all the pieces were still in the hotel particulier before being shipped to Sotheby's for the sale. And it was really fully filled. I mean, you couldn't find one empty spot in uh, each of the galleries. All right. We buy it in September of 2016. It comes to the Getty. Arlen, you and your colleagues spend a good deal of time with Annalise analyzing it, not only for what one can learn about its manufacture, but for its condition. What did you discover in your analysis of it? We have fairly uh, good documentation compared to what we usually have about the restorations that have been carried out on the cabinet, um, particularly in the early 19th century. The Royal Collection kept very good notes about restoration work that was done. And in addition to that, we found some physical evidence of the restoration because in many of the hidden drawers, we found inscriptions in pencil by the restorers who worked on it in the early 19th century saying, um, you know, my name is Joel Wood. I worked on this cabinet in 1821. And so we see that there was uh, probably two campaigns of restoration in the 1820s and another one in the 1850s. And we found actually in French, uh, highlighted on the very top of the cabinet, you could see where somebody had written on paper and that the marks had pushed through into the wood and left an impression in French about a restoration that had been done and replacements of some of the small moldings. Well, it looks to be in spectacular condition. I know that you had to do some conservation work uh, to solidify some of the pieces and you use 3D printing in one place or two places to actually reproduce small bits of elements such as to complete the decoration. Can you describe the process that you had to undertake in its conservation? Yeah, we worked on this cabinet, a team of about eight conservators for about four months um, every day very intensively. And really the major um, thing that we did was to remove old restoration varnishes. So I think in the 19th century, this was interpreted as an ebony cabinet with the assumption that all of the wood should be black. And so dark black toned varnishes were applied to all of the wood. And we have at least two and in some areas, three layers of varnishes. And those, in fact, over time had the effect of really obscuring all of the beautiful silver inlay that's in the wood and made it almost invisible. It also obscured the incredibly fine detail in the moldings. They are sharp and crisp and delicate in a way that when you apply several layers of varnishes, you completely lose the effect. So that was a very long, painstaking process to remove the varnish from all of those areas and then polish all of the silver stringing and silver inlay, which really highlights those moldings. 
Some of the moldings were missing, and as you said, we used 3D printing. We scanned um, existing moldings. They're very delicate and very fine, as I said, with silver inlay. Those could have been replicated in ebony. That makes it difficult always to keep track of which is the original and which is the restoration. So we chose to go with a 3D printing. The essential form was produced in uh, a plastic on a 3D printer. And then that was sanded and varnished and silver inlaid to uh, give it the same appearance as the old ones. Under an ultraviolet light, it's immediately apparent which ones are original and which ones are not. And that's one of the benefits to us of using that technique. So, So we should make clear to our listeners that there are very few pieces that had to be printed in that fashion and attached to the cabinet. The cabinet came to us in extraordinarily good shape for something that is 400 years old. Annalise, what difference does this make for the collection of the Getty and its decorative arts? I truly think it's a critical um, acquisition because we are, um, let's say, very strong in French decorative arts with major uh, artworks in furniture by French cabinet makers. But the collection truly lacked a major equivalent piece for the Italian part of the collection, and this uh, astonishing cabinet really fills a gap in the Getty collection. So we have a cabinet that was commissioned by or built for a pope, uh, sold to a king, sold to a shopping mall magnate. And now it's at the Getty Museum, built uh, with the largesse of an oil magnate. We've come a long way from the 17th century to the 21st century. So not far from this gallery is a bust made by Bernini, uh, commissioned by the Cardinal Scipione Borghese for his uncle, Pope Paul V, the man for whom the cabinet itself was made. Let's go take a look at that sculpture. Okay, so we've arrived in front of a bust of Pope Paul V, uh, carved by the young John Lorenzo Bernini, commissioned by the Pope's nephew, the Cardinal Scipione Borghese. Uh, Annalise, tell us about the sculpture and about why it might have been commissioned after the death of the Pope. Well, that's a very interesting question because actually we don't know. It's a mystery for all the Bernini experts. Why on earth Cardinal Scipione Borghese or the Pope never commissioned during the years of the pontificate of the Pope the portrait of Paul V? Because indeed, as you've just said, the Pope died uh, actually in January of 1621. And the first documents we have about this bust date from six months later, in June. So why... Because, as you know, the Borghese family uh, were truly critical in the early years of the career of Bernini. So while they were commissioning important statues, why didn't they commission a bust? We don't know. Yeah. So we know that the Cardinal commissioned this bust of Pope Paul V. We know that he then commissioned from Bernini at some point afterwards his own bust. So the two busts would have been seen in proximity to each other as if to say the great partnership between the cardinal and the pope with regard to the collecting of art and the building of a great art collection in the family? Yes, indeed. So we don't know exactly uh, what position was uh, in uh, the mind of a cardinal when he commissioned this bust. As you can see, uh, you know, the, the gaze of the pope looks a little bit downward. So was it meant to be in a niche, a little bit at a higher position? Perhaps. But what we know, thanks to uh, descriptions of Villa Borghese, as soon as the middle of the 17th century, uh, in the year 1650, we already have a description saying that this bust and the bust of the Cardinal Simpione Borghese, uh, done later, actually, in the uh, early uh, 1630s, they were displayed on top of um, very 
beautiful tables with uh, a top in porphyry facing uh, one each other in the most important gallery of Villa Borghese. And at least until the end of the uh, 19th century, they were kept in that gallery. As if to celebrate the artistic taste and power of the family. For sure, because Pope Paul V has been really a very important Pope for Rome. And of course, he has been critical in the career of Cardinal Scipione Borghese, because uh, when you are cardinal and uh, your uncle is elected Pope, of course, you become the cardinal nephew and you truly have a lot of power. And the Borghese family was also very rich. So sure, the Borghese family was the most important uh, family at the beginning of the 17th century in Rome. And tell us how important the family was for Bernini in his career. This family was truly important because early on, the Borghese, uh, both Pope and Cardinal, understood the skills of uh, this very exceptional sculptor and also architect and also painter. And um, they had already seen the skills of the father of uh, Gian Lorenzo, Pietro Bernini, who worked in very important basilicas, such as Santa Maria Maggiore. And early on, of course, at the moment in which they built the uh, Villa Borghese on the hill of the Pincio, they want some uh, fantastic statues by Bernini to accompany a very rich collection of antiquities. So Antique Borghe- sculptures. Antique sculptures, yeah. yes. So it's thanks to uh, the Borghese that Bernini could realize these fantastic statues and groups that we know of. Apollo and Daphne, the Rape of Proserpina, the David, all these fantastic marbles that uh, everyone knows uh, after you've visited Villa Borghese in Rome because they are truly astonishing. And what is the date of those sculptures and how does that date differ from the date of this bust? Some of them are a little bit earlier, others are contemporary and others are later. But actually for this bust, uh, the Payment to Bernini for this marble portrait is exactly done at the moment in which Bernini is carving the group of the rape of Proserpina. All right. Well, describe the bust to us, because it, it is an intricate carving of a papal vestment, that is the vestment that is draped over the shoulders of the Pope himself, and then out from his garment comes his great head, and that head is carved differently than the garments, and is so alive in appearance, both in the expression of the mouth and in the eyes, the eyes which stare, as you say, slightly downward at us and out in a distance. Indeed. So you're in front of quite an austere figure, I would say, of a Pope looking at you quite, uh, you know, severely. And uh, what is also astonishing is that it's done out of one single piece of marble. And very often, at least at the uh, beginning of his career, Bernini would uh, not... Uh, use a different uh, marble block for uh, the circle of the figure. It's one single piece. And everything is accurate from the molding of the bottom part, the circle, uh, to all the um, details on the vestment and to also all the physiognomy uh, of the Pope. He wears vestments that are actually quite traditional in the representation of popes that comes from the 16th century. And as you said, he wears this very heavy cope, which was in a very thick material. Hence, uh, this kind of very static impression that you have when you face the bust. But you can already understand that Bernini wants the viewer to feel that there is a true body underneath this vestment. And of course, Bernini later in his career would develop that further with more dynamism in the fold of the uh, draperies. 
So this vestment was traditionally um, ornated on the borders by figures of the principles of the apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul. You can recognize St. Peter because he holds uh, the keys. And on the other part, you can recognize St. Paul because he holds uh, the sword that was used for his uh, martyrdom. He was beheaded. And these two saints are, of course, the most important saints in the city of uh, Rome. Every year in June, they are celebrated, and the day is a holiday, actually. And they are also the uh, saints of the Basilica of St. Peter's. And the cape is drawn together across his chest, and there is a, a brooch that joins to and holds the two parts of the cape together. And this, the style of the brooch is quite like the decoration on the cabinet that we saw downstairs. Exactly, very rich, and we can imagine that the centerpiece would have been, for instance, uh, in crystal, and the rest of it in silver or gilded uh, metal. And what is astonishing in this portrait is that each piece is an artwork in itself. So you have this kind of decorative art element in the center through this uh, brooch. The two figures uh, I've described before are in themselves artworks, masterpieces uh, featuring figures in very low relief. But although they are carved in very low relief, look at how um, uh, they move in the space. They really give you a sense of very elegant uh, posture of these figures emerging at the surface of the uh, garment. Then you have other very elegant decorative elements with all the other vestments that the Pope wear with this uh, skirt that he has underneath with all this uh, lace element around the neck but perhaps what is most uh, astonishing is the treatment to feature uh, the face of a pope. Yeah, we should have you describe the difference between the texture of the costume of the pope uh, and the texture of his beard and his skin. Uh, it's very clearly meant to be to indicate a difference between texture of cloth and texture of skin to give a sense of the real person that is there, the body that is forming the heart of the bust. Yes, and in this we have really a full demonstration of all of the astonishing skills that Bernini had while he was, uh, you know, still very young um, at the moment in which he carved this bust. So indeed, while on the bust itself, uh, the body, I mean, uh, you can have a representation a little bit of, you know, soft velvet in the back. All these uh, fantastic garlands may have been originally for the vestment in embroidery or with uh, silver or uh, gilded uh, threads. And, uh, of course, instead, for the head, we have a fantastic representation of the flesh, of the skin, with, of course, the wrinkles uh, at the, uh, the end of the eyes, and all uh, fantastic differentiation of all the type of hair you can have on the face. You have the hair of a very short beard on the cheeks, while you have longer hair under the chin, and with also a very delicate moustache that gives quite a strange expression of this mouth that is half smiling, uh, half thinking, let's say, which is also enhanced by the uh, gaze of the eyes that are very accurately uh, carved. Look at how uh, the pupil is actually, you know, singled out with uh, a very deep uh, depression around the iris. What I also find astonishing is the way in which you have the representation of the forehead with this very strong you know, mark of the bones above the uh, eyebrows that I think helps giving a very concentrated expression of the face. It sh certainly shows uh, the power of the man. Indeed, it does. A big, strong, forceful figure. Now, we know that the bust was in the Villa Borghese, as you described it, until about 1893, when it was in the villa, 
we think it was displayed with the bust of the Cardinal Borghese. Uh, where is the bust of the Cardinal Borghese today? So the bust of uh, Cardinal Borghese is still in Villa Borghese today and everyone admires it. Why would one remain in the Villa Borghese and why would this bust be sold by the family and put on the market and then we would buy it? This is due to a complex uh, situation for the Borghese family in the 19th uh, century. The, the Borghese family truly had financial issues in the 19th century and they decided to sell most of their art pieces, but also most of their properties. So actually Villa Borghese was bought by the Italian state from the Borghese family. They organized major auctions uh, around the years uh, 1890s and in one of these um, sales was this bust that at the time was actually attributed to another important Baroque artist, Alessandro Algardi. So the uh, authorship of Bernini at the time was uh, lost. So many artworks like that were dispersed. So it's the reason why one uh, is now at the Getty Museum. Another one can be in Paris or in Copenhagen or, and others uh, were kept within the villa that was bought then by the Italian state. Well, it's a great, I'm going to call it coincidence, that we have the bust in the same museum as we have the cabinet, both from the same family and both attached to the same pope. I want to say coincidence because, of course, it wasn't a coincidence. Maybe a coincidence they came onto the marketplace, but it takes a sure eye of a curator like yours to see them and to pursue them, and a director like Tim Potts to acquire them. So we're grateful to you and to Tim for bringing the bust and the cabinet together. So thank you, and thank you, Arlen, for giving us your time this morning. Thank you. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu podcasts. Thanks for listening.